Hello, and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona, during our normal service. and I am happy to be uh, preaching with you this morning. Um, hopefully you've known by this point, kind of learned about me, that um, I'm a big movie fan, love watching movies, and when I, when I, uh, uh, when I uh, enjoy a movie, I love just researching about it, reading articles about it, watching videos about it, because like a movie you see on the screen, and there's all this stuff that goes into making a movie, and there's all this stuff that like, happens during a movie. Um, I, I love uh, kind of learning about like storytelling and all the subtle stuff that happens in movies. Because a, a good director, a good crew, is not just telling the story, um, but they'll be using different angles, different colors, different costumes, different shadows, all kinds of stuff to help like move the story along. Like little subtle things that uh, some, if you if you study films, you kind of like learn about these things. And then there are people like me that like don't understand that world. And then when I read a good article, I'm like. Oh, like I didn't realize that that's why they were doing that. And it just helps uh, to bring uh, the, the movie, uh, it makes me appreciate the movie all the more so. And then when I'm able to watch it again, I'm able to pick up on these little things. I'm like, okay, I see where they're going now. I mean, I already saw the movie. I know where they're going, but those things help me appreciate the movie all the, all the more so. And when, when you study like, storytelling, books, movies, all that kind of stuff, there are often um, certain like arcs that exist, certain tropes that exist um, that many, many films, many books use. Um, one common one is the idea of a savior-like figure the idea of a Christ-like figure, of a Messiah type of figure, that there's a figure that comes along in the course of the, of the film, they arise and they save the day. This is like the Messiah figure. And a lot of times what filmmakers will do, what storyteller, storytellers will do, um, will, will have these like parallels, these kind of symbolic things that kind of say like, this is the Jesus figure of the film. Uh, to be clear, they're not Jesus, they're just like this is the Messiah figure, so we're going to kind of have some allusions, some parallels to Jesus. Uh, maybe the character's initials are J.C. Uh, in the Terminator series, John Connor is the hero of that. He's the Christ figure. J.C. is a subtle nod to him uh, being the, the Messiah figure. Uh, maybe that figure is killed and then miraculously brought back to life uh, like Neo from The Matrix. Neo is the one. He's kind of like the Jesus figure of that film. All kinds of things like this that exist. Uh, so this, the, the character is the savior of the story, and thus there's some loose parallels that are presented that kind of mimic uh, and are related to Jesus. Kind of throughout a couple examples... I have one up here in the screen. We're going to talk about this guy for a second. Uh, we're going to talk about RoboCop. And uh, RoboCop is, um, is a Christ-like figure in his film. Um, if you're like, I've never seen RoboCop. It's a late 80s uh, action movie, very violent, but it takes place in the near future in Detroit. And there's a, uh, the, before he's a RoboCop, he's just a regular, he's a regular beat cop, and he's violently murdered by a gang, but then miraculously resurrected, and he ends up being the savior of the film. And so there's this obvious connection with him being resurrected, re resurrected as symbolic of him being a Jesus-like figure. Uh, but there's a few more subtle moments that happen in the film. Um, there's actually a scene when, he, when he's being killed that his hand is like violently shot off. And that's supposed to be like his hand being nailed to the cross. Um, and then the, towards the end of the film, he's actually like walking in this factory and there's like this water on the ground. And just for like two seconds, it looks like he's 
walking over water, which is something that Jesus is famously known for. And so um, if you watch RoboCop, just with just kind of at a casual uh, glance, it's, it's easy to miss those connections. But once you know it's there, you can't help but see it. Um, and so RoboCop. <laughs> so we're in the midst of our Advent sermon series. We're looking at the prophets uh, that Matthew references in his birth story of Jesus. And so we heard from uh, Matthew earlier with uh, Diana, and we uh, and one of the uh, prophets that is quoted during that uh, text is Hosea, um, Hosea 11, uh, 1 through 11. And so the reason I'm bringing up all like, this stuff about like, allegory and illusions and subtleties and things like that is that the Gospel of Matthew has all this amazing theology that he's presenting in a very subtle way. And it's very easy to miss some of the things that he does at first glance. And so I grew up in the church. I grew up reading the Bible all the time. I had read the birth story of Jesus like thousands of times. And some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, I just completely missed out on, on all the readings I had done, just all the time and experience that I had with the Gospel of Matthew. There's a lot of stuff going on I just completely missed out on. And then once I like learned about it as I grew older and kind of studied the Bible more, like it just it like blew my mind and it just changed how I understood how Matthew talks about Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm very excited to dive into the interplay between Hosea and Matthew and like what he has to say about Jesus. So We'll pray and we'll get started. So please uh, pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful uh, to uh, be hearing your word today. We're so thankful for uh, Hosea and what his uh, word meant for his people. We're thankful for the truth of Hosea throughout the ages, how Matthew took Hosea. And we're just, uh, uh, we pray that this morning I would indeed be able to preach and proclaim your truth from Hosea and Matthew. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. Uh, but ultimately, we pray you'd be brought glory and honor and we'd learn to better be your disciples because of that. Amen. All right, so Hosea, let's go into a quick overview of some of the important things about Hosea. Um, so he's a prophet. He appears during the final days of the northern kingdom before the people were taken into captivity. Uh, we've looked at Isaiah and we've looked at Micah the last two weeks, and their messages were against uh, the kings of the south. Um, but Hosea has a word to speak against the kings of the, of the north. Remember, there's a divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So Hosea is speaking to the kings of the north. He's around for 38 years or so, 40 years or so, and very, 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 very dark time, very, very, very tumultuous time in Israel's history. At one point uh, during his lifetime, they had six kings in a 25-year span, which if you're like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a very bad thing. You want your king to be around for a long time because when you're going through a bunch of kings, that kind of shows you like there's, there's turmoil in the land. Of those six kings, four were murdered by their successors, one was captured in battle, and only one was succeeded by his son. So if you're a king during this time, there's a very good chance that someone's out to get you or you're going to die in battle. Uh, during the life of Hosea. Um, Hosea, his main claim to fame, the thing that like, he's most famous for, is actually found at the beginning of the book, where he's told by God to go and marry a promiscuous woman. And if you've never read Hosea, if you've never heard that before, you're like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. It is there. You have my permission and blessing to go read it. It happens in the first three chapters. And this has kind of like caused all kinds of study, all kinds of questions for us. Like, that's very interesting. Like, like this command to go marry a, uh, like a prostitute or a promiscuous woman, what does that mean? Is like, was she already doing that? Does she have a history of that? Is, is this something she does after they're married? Is this something that literally happened? Or is it like an allegory? Like, God's telling a, like a prophet to go do that. That just that's, that raises a lot of very interesting questions. Um, it's, it's, 
that's also fascinating, but it's typically the, the one thing that we associate with Hosea, go marry uh, this woman. But we're not, actually, we're not actually in that text this morning. We're looking at something after that. And so Hosea is kind of like uh, the book of Jonah in that we associate one thing with, with that prophet. Story of Jonah, uh, I want you to shout out the answer. What is the thing we associate with Jonah? The whale, the big fish, exactly. Uh, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the big fish. But there's so much that happens after that. And that's kind of like what Hosea is as well. We associate this one thing with him, but there's so much uh, that follows after, uh, after that. So there's a story of him and his wife and their reconciliation and their children. They're all in their first three chapters, but then Hosea has another 11 things to talk about. Um, Hosea is kind of like a one-hit wonder uh, that, that goes on and then writes five more really good albums that aren't quite as popular or well-known, but are still pretty good. And you go, you see them live, you're like, I used to like that song on the radio, I listened to them 20 years ago, and you're like, oh, there's all this other stuff too. Like, I wish I had kind of need to explore this uh, band a little bit more. So Hosea is kind of like a, a one-hit wonder with some other good songs under his belt as well. And so like the other prophets, uh, Hosea has a message of doom and gloom, but also has a message of hope. I know the prophets can get a little messy, a little confusing, but if you've been here the last three weeks, hopefully that's something you're kind of like starting to remember, starting to grasp. You read the prophets, things are very dark, but there's always a little bit of that hope as well. Um, and so Hosea, like the other prophets before him, they're warning that Israel's destruction is coming, and a good chunk of his message is about that. But like the other prophets, there's also the message of hope, the message that there is chance for repentance, there's chance for redemption, or there will be a redemption that happens down the road. And so we're in Hosea 11, and this, this current chapter is like an in-depth look at the heart of Yahweh. It's an in-depth look at the heart of God. Because here we see the Lord God lamenting over the soon-to-be loss of his child. Uh, they've been warned by countless prophets that doom was coming. They've been given numerous chances to repent. They keep being told, hey, return to God. Stop sacrificing to foreign idols. Appoint kings that will follow the law. Stop making these weird political alliances that I never wanted you to do. Um, and time and time and time again, they just ignore this and they keep on doing what they've always been doing. The people keep doing their own thing, and they're almost at the breaking point. And it, um, as we read this passage from Hosea, we see God's sorrow in all of this. We'll be using the New Living Translation today, the NLT today. And in verse 1, we begin and we read, when, and this is God speaking, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Um, Israel, if you remember their story, they begin as a helpless people. Um, they're kind of born under horrific conditions in Egypt, and God saves them in a mighty and powerful way. Um, and and Israel is called God's son elsewhere in Scripture. This is, this is a theme we see um, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that, that theme is picked up again, uh, that Israel is God's son. Uh, but, but we see some of the, the frustrations come forth in verse 2. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me offering sacrifices to the image of Baal and burning incense to idols. So here the complaint begins, the idolatry, the idolatry begins, the worship of other gods begins, the following after other nations uh, begins. Uh, God uh, begins to call them back, but then their selective hearing begins to kick in. They're not quite hearing everything. Uh, I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped down to feed him. 
And so like a parent who helps teach their children how to walk and the child doesn't even realize what's going on, that is how God took care of Israel. That is how Yahweh uh, took care of Israel. There's a little bit of a switch in the analogies here uh, where uh, God is dis- uh, the, the care of God is described as how a farmer also gently scoops down and takes care of their animals. So he's stooping down to feed them as a farmer would do that uh, with, his, with his cattle or with his animals. And so these are very loving acts from God, very caring acts from God, and they're just met with continual and ongoing rejection. And because of that, bad things are headed their way. Hosea continues in verses 5 to 7, But since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates. They will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. The people... They miss Egypt, they miss their old life, and guess what? Those foreign powers are knocking at their door, ready to overtake them. They miss Egypt, and guess what? They're going to go back to Egypt. Uh, Their words are meaningless. They say, God is the most high? Doesn't mean anything. They're going through the motions, they're saying the words, but their hearts are not in it. And one of the reasons I picked this particular translation, I I love the phrase that's used in verse 6. War will swirl. Oof, that's just like very emotive. I like the way that sounds. I had to practice this a bit because it's a bit of a tongue twister. War will swirl. And so we get to the final section here in Hosea, or Hosea and we see that the heart of Yahweh just pour out God's anguish over what's going on, what's about to happen. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel. For I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria. And I will bring them home again, says the Lord. And so here in this kind of final uh, part from Hosea, we just see the heart of Yahweh. We see the heart of God. God's son has abandoned their father. And God is like almost like struggling with this, trying to make sense of it, trying to like come to terms with it. God does not want to see the people destroyed, even though they brought this destruction upon themselves. Um, ultimately, they will be destroyed, and that's just breaking God's heart. Um, but Yahweh also sees a future date uh, where the people will indeed return, where God will once again roar like a lion. The people will return. They will return from Egypt. They will return from Assyria, and God says they will be brought home again. And so Hosea is almost like presenting this like inner monologue that God is going through. It's, it's, it's full of like emotion and empathy and sadness. Often when we think about the prophets, when we read them, when we study them, we think of the emotion of anger because there is a lot of anger there in, 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 with God and the prophets. And here we see a different side of things. We, we see just like a sadness to God. This is a very sad uh, passage. God is lamenting the loss of the firstborn as God knows what is about to happen to the people, and it's not going to be pretty. And so 
That's Hosea 11. And like any prophetical text we encounter, so much to like unpack, so many different directions we could go with this message. Uh, but since we're looking at the, um, the four prophetical texts that Matthew cites in the birth story of Jesus, I want to briefly compare uh, this one with the last two texts we looked at. Um, and so when we looked at the, uh, the passage that Matthew cited from Isaiah, we discussed at length how that was understood uh, just as having meaning for, uh, for Isaiah's original audience and, and, and nothing else. There, there wasn't any kind of future understanding in that message. It was only, being, it was only seen as being for that people in that day and in that, in, in that age. And then Matthew comes along, he took that text from Isaiah and he says, you know what? Actually, you know, there, was an original, there was an original meaning, but maybe there was a later meaning as well. So uh, Isaiah was taken by Matthew and, like, and kind of spun off in a new direction. When we looked at Micah last week, um, we, we talked about how there was original and intended meaning, but there was understood to be a future meaning, a future uh, understanding of that as well. The original audience understood that to be about them. But right from the get-go, they also understood, hey, there's, there's, there's a futureness about this as well. It's for us, but it's also about um, a later day as well. Well, this passage from Hosea is, is more in line with, with Isaiah in that the original audience, it was, they understood this is a message for us, and, and that was about it. This is supposed to be for us. We don't have any kind of future message. There's no messianic hope in, in this message. Like, yes, there's an understanding, there's a future promise, a future idea that there will be salvation, but it wasn't understood in messianic terms. It wasn't understood that the, that the Messiah will be fulfilling this here in Hosea. Remember, Hosea, like the other prophets, he's, he's presenting a message of destruction, but then a message of eventual turnaround. And like most of the other prophets, this message from Hosea was understood that happened, and that was about it. So this Hosea passage, it's part of Israel's story, and that was it. They weren't really using it beyond that. They were just remembering their past and hoping that one day things would be different. There's some vague hope, some generic hope. That's about it. But then Matthew comes along and he says, you know what? I'm telling you the story about our Savior. And I'm going to comb through our Bibles. I'm going to comb through our scriptures. I'm going to look at our prophets. And I'm going to remix some of this for us. I'm going to retell some of this. I'm going to tell you about the life of Jesus, and in some parts of our Bible, we know we're pointing to him, but some of the parts that maybe we didn't think were about him, maybe, maybe they actually are, and that's how I'm going to weave my story and tell you about Jesus. And we have four different gospel stories. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all remarkably similar in that the overarching story they present, the overarching message they present about the life of Jesus, it pretty much lines up. Uh, those three gospels, they contain the same miracles, the same characters, the same general flow, same story, dialogue, speeches. You could almost mix and match like them. You could take some part of Matthew, put it into Luke, kind of switch them around, and no one would even notice at first glance. That's how, that's how similar, similar they are. The fourth gospel, John, Bit of a different take, bit of a different flavor, not so much overlap. But the thing of it is, when you start to slow down and when you start to slowly look at the stories that they present, you will start to see these small and subtle differences that each author brings to the table, despite how similar they are. So they each have a bit of a different focus, even though they are very, very, very similar. And so, for instance, Luke was a doctor. That's something we know about him. He's, he's, he's uh, described as a doctor in Scripture. And when you compare him to Matthew and Mark, he brings more of a medical flavor 
to his story. There's a bit of a more, more of an emphasis on medicine in the Gospel of Luke. There's more medical terminology. There's mention of doctors and physicians, things like that, that aren't in the other stories. And likewise, Matthew brings his own elements to the table and kind of bring his own flavor, his own little unique spin on things. And one of the big ones for Matthew is that Jesus is the new Israel. That's one of the themes that we see in Matthew. Last week, we kind of briefly went over this idea that Jesus is understood as someone from the Hebrew Scriptures, someone from the Old Testament, but the better and complete and more perfect version of that person. So Jesus is like King David, but he's, a, he's like a royal king that, whose reign will bring in peace. So he's like David, but like so much better. Uh, Jesus is like Adam, the first person, the first man, uh, but um, he doesn't eat the fruit. He's the perfect image of God. Likewise, in Matthew especially, Jesus is presented as the new Israel. And, and what I mean by that is that the big picture of Israel, the story of Israel, is personified in the life of Jesus. Matthew draws parallels between the life of the nation of Israel and the life of Jesus. So, like, taking a step back, what is Israel's story? Well, the nation of Israel, they are called from Egypt. They existed before Egypt, uh, but that's where they spent their first few years as a toddler. That's where they started to grow up, in Egypt. And as they leave Egypt, they pass through a body of water. They're baptized in the Red Sea. And after this, they go into the desert for a unit of 40. They go into the desert for 40 years. And we see this exact same thing uh, mirrored in the life of Jesus. He's born, and then he, his family flees to Egypt. Matthew quotes from Hosea and says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then as Matthew begins and tells the story of Jesus, the first thing Jesus does as a grown-up when he appears on the scene is he also passes through a body of water. He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And then immediately after he does this, he's then led into the desert for a period of 40, not 40 years, because that would be a little crazy, 40 days. Um, and so Matthew is being incredibly intentional with this storytelling, with this arc, with the flow, and with the details. Jesus, like Israel, is the Son of God, but a different kind, like a better Son of God, like a more complete, true, perfect Son of God. And so the original audience, they would have been reading about Jesus and thought to themselves, like, his story, man, that sounds really familiar. That sounds a lot like my story. We kind of went through these same things as well. The, the parallels, they're unmistakable and incredibly intentional. And this is the kind of stuff I just missed out on as a kid. And this is the stuff I love. And, but here's where, like, th if you think this is good, this is where it gets really, really good. This is where it picks up. This is where it gets, like, crazy good. And so what happens in the desert? That's where things diverge, and that's where things uh, get different, and this is where Matthew really drives it home. Because for Israel, when they're in the desert, things start to fall apart. They, they fall into idolatry, and they never really get past this. That continues their story, like kind of cycles again and again and again. It's the same thing. It's just like continual story of Israel's failure once they begin in the desert. But what does Jesus do when he is in the desert. He is tested, he is tempted by Satan three times. He does not give in. He succeeds. And so you're reading the story and you're like, okay, this is like Israel. You get to the desert and you're thinking like, okay, 
Jesus is going to fail when he gets to the desert, but that is where the pattern breaks. That is where things change, and you realize the story was the same, but now it's headed in a different and new direction. Like, what's going to happen next? This is crazy. That's where the comparison between the two sons of God diverges and sets the stage for what the new son of God will do and what he will be like. He is the son who will succeed, who will be obedient, who will be faithful. And we get further details into the comparison. When we read about Jesus being tested uh, by Satan three times, Jesus quotes from Scripture, and he quotes the same book. He quotes from Deuteronomy. He's basically quoting from the book that contains the original desert wanderings of the first son of God. And Deuteronomy helps to outline the, the failing of the first son. And this new son, this perfect son, is saying, things are different. I got this, fam. It's going to be different this time. It's going to be a lot better. I'm not going to let you down. I ain't going to fail. We got this. Things are better now. And so this familiar story, this familiar pattern of God's son has changed as failure is no longer the pattern. It's, it's very different and like, oh man. And so this remixed story of, of Israel and Hosea and the son of God that Matthew is pulling together uh, to present this new son of God is setting the stage for the very good things that will follow. And so, you know, if you've, if you've already heard about this, if you've like, like oh, I've heard these connections, like, if, you know, if you've heard that before, I hope you found this encouraging, I hope you found this interesting, and if you were like, I have never heard this before, like, that's very new to me, like, I hope you all have a newfound appreciation for what Matthew is doing with his story. I um, hope, hope that's, uh, there's this, some subtle things that's very easy for us to miss, and I just, I love stuff like this. You know, Advent is all about the celebration of God doing new things in the world. Advent is all about the celebration of the true and uh, complete and the perfect Son of God doing amazing things in the world. Uh, To carry the analogy even further uh, of children, all of us here are children of God. Everyone here is a child of God. Everyone here is a son of God or a daughter of God. You are all made in the image of God, and you are all loved by God the Father. That's something like we need to take hold of and live out every day of our lives. But, and, and like Israel, like that first like son or daughter of God, we're not going to live up to our true calling. This, this side of eternity, this side of the new heavens and the earth, this side of just like the, the brokenness of things, like we're just going to keep getting in our own way. We're going to trip over ourselves. That's just kind of like the story of humanity. Um, but in every season and every point in our lives, the call of the true and the perfect and complete son is, come follow me. Come trust in me and who I am calling you to be and what I am calling you to be. The people that are loved by God who are in turn to show that love to everyone around you. That's what Advent is about. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.